Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. We have a good program for you today. Few things bring more immediate scrutiny and impassioned angst among young adult Christians today than hearing the words purity culture. Serious flaws from purity culture deserve to be scrutinized, of course, especially given its lasting negative effects on some raised in the movement. Many Christians today reject the movement and all that it stood for wholesale. However, we can't ignore the clear sexual ethics of the Bible. The new book, Pure, dives into the big picture of God's design for men and women regarding sexuality and seeks to reclaim one of the clearest teachings in Scripture, the call to sexual purity. While purity culture gets the truth right, the approach and gospel elements it espouses are often wrong. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but rather celebrate God's great design for marriage and the loving boundaries he has put in place for our joy, protection, and flourishing. And on today's episode of the podcast to talk about this new book, Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive, is Dean and Sarah, who is the founding and lead pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida, and author of several books, including The Unsaved Christian, Getting Over Yourself, and this new book, Pure. Dean, welcome back, brother. It's good to have you. And an, and an alumnus of Midwestern Seminary. That's it right. Is, I uh, should mention. It, it uh, is, uh, uh, it's good to be back <laughs> with you. I'm making a lot of friends this new book, let me tell you. I bet. I bet. Well, I want to talk about that a little bit, but uh, you're right, an illustrious alum. The other thing that you and I have in common is um, uh, just all out of proportion uh, admiration, if not, quote unquote, obsession with the goat, Tom Brady. And so I have to ask you, um, how are you doing with this unretirement thing? Or is it was that, were you good with the retirement and were you good with the unretirement or how are you feeling? I'm still adjusting to the bucks, so I'm still there. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't overcome that yet. Uh, but uh, yeah, but they're but, closer uh, to you than New England is. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, and I, and I, but I, when he retired, I said, you know what? I still think he has more left in the tank and has one more run in him. But I was okay with it. Yeah. So now I'm nervous because I don't oh. want to because these things never end well. No, so don't you don't want like him pulling a far out there. Yeah. Yeah, and his legacy is already in stone, thankfully. But yeah, the Favre thing, and then and like Joe Montana went to the Chiefs. Yeah, they went to the playoffs one year, but he wasn't great. And Unitas went to the Chargers. It's like, eh, it just makes me a little uneasy. Yeah. <laughs> but I get to watch him play more. My boys get to watch him play more, so I'll take it. Yeah, it, it is strange having followed so long. And, you know, I became a Patriots fan and still am a Patriots fan. So, um, you know, and that won't change even if he – even when he retires again. I almost yeah, said same. if – I almost yeah. said if he retires again, <laughs> like he's immortal or something. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm. The only thing I'm, I'm thinking is if there is a, um, an evident kind of trailing off. If he begins to show his rust in his age, if he really gets frustrated, I wonder if that could be used by the Lord to kind of exacerbate his dissatisfaction, the angst that he undoubtedly feels in his heart, and might make him more receptive to the eternal satisfaction of the gospel, because it just seems like, I mean, he, you know, he's the greatest to ever do it. And yet he's never satisfied ever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah he's the, yeah. Yeah. It's one thing to be driven. It's another to be never satisfied. Those are two different things. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, for him, it's like, he's the athletic equivalent of the, you know, the greedy, 
you know, rich guy, like how much is enough? Just a little bit more, you know, it's, yeah. you know, you're always chasing the next million dollars or whatever it is. Uh, for Brady, it's not necessarily money, although he is a very wealthy man. <laughs> um, it, it, it just is, it's rings. It's, I don't even know if it's stats. I think he really just likes the competition and just wants to keep kind of excelling. And he's got to know there's a there's a cliff there. But anyway, we're not here to talk about Tom Brady. We You and I could do that for this whole episode. We're here to talk about Pure, your new book from Moody Publishers, uh, subtitle, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. I wonder if you could begin just by sharing with us um, what purity culture is. Because, you know, we hear this phrase a lot. It's kind of thrown out. There's a lot of books from kind of the ex-evangelicals or the progressive wing or even some within the evangelicals who write critiques or just, you know, they label purity culture um, and equate it with something very negative and critical. Um, could you kind of define that for us? What is sure. purity culture? Well, I grew up right in the middle of it, like right smack in the 90s. I was in middle school and high school, so I was around it all the time. And we didn't refer to it as purity culture then. It's called that in retrospect. Uh, but the two things that need to come to mind when anyone ever thinks about purity culture is the True Love Waits movement and also yep. by Kiss Dating Goodbye, the book by Josh Harris. Uh, so the True Love Waits movement, the whole goal was to get you to sign a card. And the card was you were pledging to God, to yourself, and to your future mate. That was the language they used, that you would save yourself sexually until marriage. Uh, they, they had like invitation around it, like an old-fashioned gospel invitation where you'd come up and like dedicate your card at the altar uh, they they had purity <laughs> rings, purity rings where you would wear a ring on your finger. You're 16 years old having to think about this kind of stuff. And and then the, <laughs> the whole idea was that one day you're going to give that ring like on your honeymoon to your spouse. And there was like skits around it and like, you know, dramas and spoken words. And it was always and a testimony of somebody who, you know, had messed up when they were 16 and now they're 25 and regret it. And, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. So that was the that was kind of the big thing what was going on. But it was everywhere. There were songs written about it, devotionals written about it. And, and then Josh Harris's book uh, called people uh, away from just kind of traditional dating and to what he called courting which he claimed was more of a biblical model uh, where you didn't start dating someone until you thought that was the person you were going to marry and then dated intentionally with marriage in mind. But that might sound nice, but one, he was, he was, you know, I mean, you're almost writing from an ivory tower when you're writing that kind of book. And when you're 15 years old reading that, you're supposed to be thinking about courting that just seemed a little extreme and a little much. Uh, So those are the two kind of main (laughs) things from what's now called purity culture and uh, the effects of it really are kind of two main focus areas, kind of two sides. And one, it produced some Pharisees, uh, some people who said, well, since I save myself, that was the language, since I save myself, I deserve someone uh, who also did the same. Uh, so mm-hmm. they would not even date someone if they found out that they had, you know, had gone too far, been intimate with someone, whatever it could be. Uh, and then the other side was one of shame and guilt where since you had you know, crossed the line or you had engaged in an intimate relationship with someone before marriage, and now you were viewed as, you viewed yourself as like damaged goods, as someone who had disqualified themselves, you'd already messed up. So you either saw people continue in it because they would say, well, I already did this. Why does it matter now? Or someone who's totally thought that they were never going to marry a great Christian person uh, because of these things. So there really were uh, some real uh, non, I would say, gospel elements to it. I really wish that our kind of gospel-centered movement 
uh, could have been more prevalent than at that time. So I think the yeah. approach would have been a lot different. Yeah, you know, the the emphasis of, you know, um, uh, personal holiness and upholding the, you know, the biblical sexual ethic and the commandments, um, you know, regarding sexuality, it was a good emphasis. I, I think, you know, and I didn't realize this when I was kind of in the thick of it either, really. But kind of the motivation of guilt rather than grace and and this damaged goods aspect that you you spoke of is almost as if like this is the worst thing you could do. And if 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 you do, you know, if you violate these, you know, commandments, if you if you, you know, don't save yourself, so to speak, or if you become un you know impure, you're you're stained, you know, you it's a enduring you know, almost scarlet letter kind of thing with it. Yeah. I, yeah, I wonder if you could speak to, because I know you, you know, you minister in a, you know, context where, you know, it's a high uh, concentration of college students and, uh, and young adults. Um, I think, you know, I know your church is multi-generational, but, but by and large, I think it's mostly young um, people at your church. Are they still struggling with this? Is this still a thing or, has the pendulum kind of swung the other way to a kind of impurity culture? Where are we at now? Yeah, and that's why I really wrote the books. I saw it swing too far okay. uh, because, yeah, because I, I think that what's happened is that only the only time we talk about this whole idea of purity culture is in the negative. So I really think the motives of the people behind it were right. I think just the the way they carried it out and the tactics weren't really lined up with a gospel-centered perspective. I mean, the things they were calling people to were actually right. It was just the motivation is not some hypothetical future spouse. The motivation is God's glory, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and following Jesus. And that wasn't talked about very often. It was more, you don't want to be the one on your honeymoon that basically messes the whole thing up. And painting the honeymoon as this sort of utopia uh, kind of uh, understanding. So what's happening now is I'm seeing more of, a, is it really that big of a deal um, you know, it's, it's, we're going to get married anyways. Uh, you know, it's, uh, we're consenting. It's, it's just sex. You know, I'm, I'm seeing more of that or Christians that are because the purity culture movement had become just so anti any conversation about it. And I'm like, look, just because you read the New Yorker in the Atlantic and drink expensive coffee does not mean that God changes his design. Right? I mean, just because you <laughs> feel like right. you're more enlightenment. So that, that's what's happened is that people are either are being quiet about it or are pushing back against it altogether while still claiming the name of Christ. Uh, so thankfully at our church, I mean, our students aren't perfect, obviously, but it, uh, sexual ethics is such a central part of discipleship. We just talk about it regularly because we think the Bible talks about it regularly, uh, that our students get it and understand it. What we're dealing with in the kind of local culture at large is just kind of what's the big deal? Why does it really matter as long as I'm consenting and we're in love and that, that kind of idea? And for some Christians, the claim of, oh, we're going to get married anyways. Yeah, I I do want to ask you a little bit about that um, shortly, but before we get there, I wonder if you could speak to, if you have any insight on this concept or the, at least the claim that um, younger people are actually um, having sex less often than, for instance, you know, my generation or maybe even your generation, you know, did when we were their age. So the, you know, teenage birth rate has fallen and that's not just because of People using you know birth control more those those sorts of things. They're having less sex, you know, premarital sex than teenagers did previous generations. 
But the claim is like that's not necessarily because they're staying pure, but perhaps because of other sort of uh, dysfunctions that have, <laughs> that have you know taken place. I, I you know, just as a an, an anecdote, I remember a few years ago when people were celebrating because Playboy was going out of business and people weren't buying Playboy magazine anymore, and and so you know, Playboy was going to stop printing Playboy magazine, and and people were like, "This is great." People lost their appetite, but the reality was, because of the onslaught, the the steady open door of hardcore pornography on the internet, people's tastes, you know, had actually gotten more coarse. They'd actually gotten worse. You know, when you look at you know, even everything from kind of the incel culture to all you know all sorts of things. Is people having less sex today? Obviously, that's, you know, less premarital sex is better <laughs> than a lot of premarital sex. So I hope nobody mishears me. I, I just am wondering, it's just a weird mix because I don't sense that it's because people are adopting this biblical ethic. So what is it that they're adopting? What's happening, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah look, at the sexual, look at the sexual revolution right now. People are clearly not adopting the Bible. Right, exactly. You know, it's not, it's, not, yeah, it's exactly. not because of that. Yeah, I, I think it's what you said. I think the pornography craze, I think now um, that – I think some people answer that question as in they're, they're not – because they're not dating as much. Uh, uh, so instead, screen time – just meeting somebody online just to get together and you know hook up, for lack of a better way to put it. You know, I mean, Tinder's thriving right now. These different apps that are taking place. And I, I think a lot of this do the fact people just aren't as in much relationships anymore and that they're just kind of preoccupied and busy and those type of things. But they still have their, I, I guess, their night outs and, and those type of things. So I'm not fully buying that uh, yeah, in, yeah. in terms of what I see locally. I'm hearing not as many uh, about it from many college students, but I still see it very prevalent with young adults, like young adults, like out of school in the workforce, young professional uh, seeing that that kind of hookup culture is very much a part of it. where you know, cohabitation is kind of the new engagement. And even where sex is so expected that it's almost become like the, the first kiss used to be, or it's oh, almost implied, if, if it's almost like implied, if you agree to go out with someone, that this is going to be the reality. I mean, my, my uh, wife volunteers at a uh, pregnancy center and STD clinic, a Christian based in town, and their clientele is through the roof. Hmm. I mean, through the roof. Yeah. So, but, but for the numbers being a little bit down, I would agree with you that has to do with, with screens pornography preoccupied not dating as much um, because people just aren't as social you know they're not as hospitable they're just not as connected and, and i think those things are, are um I, I, I do think that less premarital sex is better than more premarital sex but i'm also concerned uh, with that aside i'm concerned about just that lack of relational aspect we're seeing happen in our in our world right now man yeah that is so insightful we, we just had um chris martin on the program talking about the impact of uh, the social internet so, and social media. And I, I, you know, I just wonder like just how socially maladjusted <laughs> so, uh, so many, not just young people, but you know, all of us are becoming and, and not just because of pornography, but just the way, we, you know, the way we interact, the way we conduct relationships and even our ability to speak, to carry on real substantive conversation you know, meaningful conversation that's not performative, all, you know, all of that now being mediated through these little screens and sound bites. I wonder if that has kind of, you know, affected so. in, yeah, you know, things I, as well. I think so, for sure. I, mean, I, I think it's kind of undeniable, you know, the social yeah. ramifications, everything that all this is having. But, but I, I think that in that we have an opportunity to push people towards 
that like dating can be a good thing if it's done without regrets if it's done you know in a way that honors the lord because in our culture dating is how you meet your future spouse right <laughs> we want yeah. that to be part of people's rhythm uh, because again we're not in an arranged marriage culture and <laughs> we're, we're we're in a dating is like the means which for a christian makes it complicated because the bible doesn't speak to dating that doesn't make it bad it just makes it neutral that's we have to figure out how to faithfully carry this out in a, a system that, that the scriptures didn't create. Like how do you faithfully date through that? And I, I try to cover that a lot in the book as well. Yeah, that's good. Um, you have a whole section. I want to get to these lies, these kind of cultural and, and individual lies that you work through chapter by chapter. Uh, a whole section of your book is dedicated uh, to seven lies. And you know we're not going to go through each one, but there's three I want to ask you about. And the first is, I found this really intriguing. Marriage is a capstone, not a cornerstone. This is lie number two. Marriage is a capstone, not a cornerstone. What does that mean? Yeah, well, marriage used to be viewed as what you build your life from. Like my wife and I got married very right out of college. I had just turned 23. She had just turned 22 a month before. We had nothing. We didn't even have jobs yet. We moved to seminary and got jobs, uh, but we built our life from marriage. Now the view is once you save up enough money, get the degrees you want to get, you know, backpack Europe, check off five items on your bucket list, you know, pursue your dreams. <laughs> then once you do all of that and then live together for a while, once you do all that, then kind of get married down the road. It's like a capstone on life rather than a foundation uh, to build your life from. And that's that's everywhere now. And even Christian families are buying into that. Uh, whether they're to, you know not wanting their their kids the, their adult kids to get married at 21 or 22 they want them to go achieve these dreams and take this internship and travel the world and and and, and Christian parents without knowing it or maybe without intentionally knowing it are buying in and even endorsing functionally this whole idea of marriage as a capstone rather than a cornerstone and I think that we well, I don't want to, I'm not saying get married flippantly or in a way that's unwise but marriage should be what we build our lives from not what we build our lives to. Yeah, but but you're not saying, are you, that, for instance, if you know, if you're single, you know, even single than you know, longer than you'd want to be, that you're somehow not following God's will, or you've no. somehow being selfish or something like that. If you're single, no, I don't think that at all. No, I, I would say though, if you're if you are single, and by single I mean not married. I don't mean you have a boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean not married. Yeah. Uh, that you that in that dating relationship you should be pursuing eventually. You know, it should be going somewhere. You know, we're not just kind of dating just to date. I don't mean the first few months or just hanging out and getting to know each other. Uh, but for a single person, I have a chapter on singleness. I think it's really important that churches uh, do not make uh, single adults in their in their church membership and in their fellowship uh, feel like they're JV. You know, marriage yeah. is important. Marriage is important, but God also said it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, that the desires we have uh, are to be acted out in the confines of marriage. These are good things that God has made, but also marriage is an ultimate. Uh, so I, I don't think that a, a single adult is uh, in the wrong if they're not pursuing marriage. But if they're interested in the opposite sex and in having relationships, that needs to be, I would recommend that being something they pursue. Because for the Christian, are we just going to continue to go on in this uh, you know, it's secular created system called dating forever and it not lead anywhere? That's a capstone <laughs> mindset rather than a cornerstone mindset. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, let's talk about line number five. My bedroom is my business. Yeah, why Why is uh, yeah. my bedroom any of your business, brother? Why? Well, well, it might not be too much of mine, but it's definitely God's. <laughs> okay, okay, all right. <laughs> and, and, and he I'm cares a lot. <laughs> he cares a whole lot. <laughs> and uh, and also, um, if we're in church fellowship together, then you're, you're um, 
not the right. not the you know nitty gritty personal details, but in terms of how you're acting out your relationships, that is my business. That is your business. If we're in fellowship together, again, not the strange inappropriate details, uh, but uh, in terms of, of like how we're living our lives. You know, it's, it's God's will that we be that we be sanctified, not that, that we don't live our lives in sexual immorality, and that should be a community uh, accountable kind of togetherness for Christ following together. But the most important fact is that it's God's business. It's absolutely God's business. And we need to make sure that we're well aware uh, that God doesn't think in the same categories that we think. This whole my bedroom doesn't matter who you love. Why does it matter? It's not hurting anyone. It doesn't bother you. It's like, okay, let's say all those things are true. The Lord knows and the Lord's been clear on what uh, his design is for us as men and women. And we need to make sure that we're clear on that and not buying the lie that it doesn't matter. It's just my bedroom, my choice. Yeah, I mean, it, that's really, isn't it just sort of a, an extension of how much we hate authority and oh, yeah. how, you know, even today, you know, religious, you know, authority especially. And so we just want to say, you know, this is uh, outside of my personal autonomy is what is what ultimately matters. And gosh, I mean, it's because for some, yeah, yeah you can't yeah. tell me it's, it's, it's a simple, I'm a simple guy. It's as simple for some as you can't tell me what to do. I mean, it's like that's a right. it's like a three year old. <laughs> I mean, that's really how it functions sometimes. And people just want to justify, you know, the actions they're making. They believe there's more to be gained by disobeying God than obeying God. And they're going to try to justify it any way they can. That's really what's happening. Yeah. Okay. Now, here's one that um, has been popular even since I was young. Um, I think it's been popular for a while. It's line number seven. Cohabitation just makes sense. Yep. Cohabitation just makes sense. I mean, we're married in our heart, Dean. Uh, what? Uh, we're going to get married anyways. We're what's the ceremony going to do? You know? Yeah. My favorite is we're married in God's eyes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Says whom? <laughs> Have yeah. you asked them? So, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, that is just such a worldly understanding. You know, it's like, oh, well, it saves money. Um, it just, we're trying to get to know each other. And even the world's lies, like, we want to make sure that we're, physically compatible not just relationally compatible whatever that even means uh but just over and over again i it's this is sad like i almost assume now uh that couples are are living together when they're dating when they're out of college and a little bit older because it's become so normalized and i'm seeing christians that's one of our biggest areas of discipleship we have to continually lean into is that reality when couples ask me to do their wedding uh, you'd be shocked how often uh that they are living together and and it's just one of those things where they're usually they're kind of marginally church. A lot of times those who actually are like, like really taking church seriously, they may have to have to live up to a certain ethics and morals to be church members. But, um, but those that are kind of marginal, that are kind of on the fringe, that kind of sit in the back row, come once a month, uh, majority of those people are living together. It's really become a very normal thing. And if you ask them why or push back or challenge, they look at you like you're crazy. Because again, yeah. it just makes sense to them. It's just easier. And that's and that's why they're and they think it's it's like why wouldn't we do that like you're going to get married without first living together are you crazy and that's right. really how they view it. Yeah, I remember a, um, an extended family member explaining to her mother, who um, was you know upset, rightfully so, that um, her daughter was moving in with her boyfriend, and um, you know was saying it's wrong. This is this is wrong, and and um, <laughs> her daughter saying. Um, you know, times are just different, yeah. mom, you know, you know, times have changed. So it it wasn't even a debate over what does the Bible say or is, you know, which, you know, has no expiration date on it. Yeah. It's simply that, well, you know, that was a cultural moray of your time. And this, 
you know, it's not taboo anymore. But we have not just, you know, the biblical, you know, outline for sexual faithfulness, uh, you know, to abide by, but statistics, right? I mean, you know, isn't the research showing that couples that cohabitate actually end up, you know, split up more than the divorce rate for marriage? Yeah. Yeah, it's undeniable. I mean, because because I mean, really, you're you're already living this kind of fake commitment out, right? That's when you're right. cohabitating, you're not really committed. You're committed until one of you decides you're not. So it's almost their own. It's almost their own rationale takes place. But they say things like, well, "What's a marriage ceremony? What's a ring? Why does it really matter? We're committed." Well, they, they actually act out their own logic, but because then they get married and they've already used to this kind of fake commitment, they're probably on their third or fourth long-term serious relationship. So it's like, hey, what's the big deal? I just want to do what makes me happy. It all circulates back to that. I want to do what makes me happy in the moment right now. And they decide it's undeniable. So not only do we have the creator of the universe on our side <laughs> when it comes to uh, this design, uh, we also just had the practical implications of what makes a relationship flourish. It's as if God knew what he was doing <laughs> when he designed all yeah, of this. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, we're, we're not trying to throw rules on people. This is for God's glory and for our good. Uh, and so he he has created sex uh, not to be for in love people or mature people or ready people, but for married people. And he's clearly defined marriage between a man and a woman for his glory and for our good and our flourishing. So we're trying to point people towards what God has given us, not simply keep them from something. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, re- I remember several years ago, I think I wrote about this in in, in one of my books, and I'm going to get the stat wrong, but the guys who designed True Love Waits, who kind of launched that movement and and that material – once the data started coming in and they discovered actually that the majority of those who have made this commitment, uh, whether with the ring or not, but they'd signed their card, made a commitment to wait until marriage to have sex, that the majority were not remaining sexually pure before marriage. And so they were rightfully asking themselves, is there something wrong with our materials or something wrong with our campaign? Why isn't this high bar, this commitment working? And what they determined was kind of what you outlined in the beginning was this sort of the guilt driven or the fear driven. This one thing they identified actually was that um, the concerns about um, sexually transmitted diseases and teenage pregnancy, you know, um, reminding people of the dangers of those things actually wasn't motivating people to abstain. You know, you don't think it's going to happen to you. Yeah, yeah, it was a, you know those were poor motivators, and and what they did discover is those who did remain pure. So then they wanted to look at at those who maintained their commitment of of the minority of that did. They said, well, what was it really that made the difference? And what they discovered was it was folks who maintained a vital personal relationship with Jesus, uh, you know, <laughs> <There it is. laughs> for whom Christ was was a real person and yeah. that they were in relationship with. So. You know, outline, you know, you know, the latter part of your book, I mean, that's just sort of the banner over it is, you know, the answer is the gospel. But your whole section three is where do we go from here? So kind of outline for us, where do we go from here? Yeah, I want to be champ. We want to be champions of God's design. We want to be really clear uh, about what that design is. Uh, It's a thread throughout the scriptures. You know, Genesis, we see the one flesh union. It's uh, that's uh, definitely more than sex, but it's not less. And then here's Jesus in Matthew 19 being asked about marriage. What does he do? He quotes Genesis. Paul, when talking to the Corinthian church about temple prostitution, what he doesn't just give them a lecture about prostitution. Instead, he points them to Genesis, that one flesh mm-hmm. idea. And then in chapter five of Ephesians, talking about Christ and the church, talking about marriage, it's the one flesh union that drives the understanding. 
Uh, so we got to help folks to see that. There's even a bigger picture than just us. Uh, God already had the gospel in mind when he created marriage. That oneness, that one flesh union of husband and wife points us to the greatest union uh, of Christ in the church. So we got to teach that theologically and why that really matters. And not just clear, but also got to be really compassionate. We're in a sexually broken world. Jesus was such a great model of how to handle this. The woman at the well, he talks to her about her sin, and then he also offers her living water. You know, he offers her salvation. Uh, so I think we got to realize that we're going to see a lot of people who walk in as casualties of this sexual revolution, and we don't want to well, then to, understand, to see God as the one who's mad at them uh, because they you know, made some mistakes when they were 18 or 20 on a date, uh, but instead is the God who welcomes them into, into his family and wants to forgive them of their sins. And, and so, so I think we have to really like, hold up these things we claim to believe as true in this sexually broken world. I really wish the Trilla Waits movement would have been gospel-centered. And I'm not trying to yeah. be cliche in saying that. Like, if that would have been the approach, it would have been completely different. Uh, and I think that, again, people still would have made their own choices, but the motivation would not have been guilt or fear or, or shame. Uh, the motivation would have been God and, God and God's grace and God's glory. Uh, so, and, and I think I'd be quick to forgive, quick to show compassion, and also unapologetically be clear on what God has given us. I just heard testimonies when I was in True Love Waits about people who messed up. You know, I didn't hear testimonies about God's design or stories of the scriptures about God's grace. It was all about, well, I made a mistake, and I was the one, and it was really hard for us because my husband had waited, and I didn't. And, you know, now I'm just mm. trying to—it's just, I was always that, you know? It's like, well, you should, but when you're 16, it's only going to resonate so much. It could seem so far away and so hypothetical uh, when you're going on, when you have a boyfriend right then and there. You know, So um, I wish that it would have been so more focused on Jesus and following Christ than it would have been anything else of this world. Yeah. W would you say, Dean, that Jesus wants the rose? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Matt. But yes. Yeah. And those skits were brutal, man. I mean, like, yeah, that's right. There's like this girl standing there and she's like giving away like 10 rose petals, standing there by herself, like fake crying. And oh. the girl and all of a sudden this guy walks out and gives you a hug. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, what is going on here? Yeah, Jesus wants the rose. So thank you, Pat, for that uh, time forever known quote. <laughs> yeah. And thank you, Jesus, for, uh, for loving us. For wanting the rose. For wanting <laughs> yeah. the rose. For loving exactly. us no matter what. Brother, right. uh, I'm excited about the book. Thank you for writing it. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. We've been talking with Dean and Sarah. He's the author of the new book, Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. It's available wherever good books are sold from Moody Publishers. And as always, dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.